reading of God's word. I will read uh, Genesis 3, 1 through 14, and 20 through 24. This is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You won't surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. And the eyes of the both were opened, and they knew uh, that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and asked him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then skipping down to verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, oh, send your Holy Spirit. Because we just read of the day that we became blind and the day that we died. And to understand this passage tonight, apart from your presence in your mercy, would be like asking a blind person to read a medical journal on blindness. So come, Lord Jesus, by your spirit and give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that sees you and loves you as you are. Show us, Jesus, show yourself big and beautiful and sufficient. Would you do this so that you would get all the praise and glory that you are worthy of, every ounce of it? Amen. The male gender is notorious for not going to the doctor. You might have seen a lot of comedians do a lot of stand-up on this about what injuries guys get that don't qualify of going to the ER, 
uh, a gigantic gash on your shin or a huge piece of wood or something in your arm, and you end up with primitive medicine after that. Or perhaps you've got a dad or a grandfather who you're like, this guy's a heart attack walking around waiting to happen somewhere. Or uh, some other medical ailment that someone in your family has, and they will not go to the doctor for money reasons or pride reasons or just don't want to be nagged about it. My dad was a little bit uh, like that when we were growing up, uh, but everything changed when I was in high school. And here's why it changed. You need to know this about my dad. He played college basketball, and like most college athletes, he busted his knee. And so the career ended, and uh, my dad had to get knee surgery in the early 1970s. Problem is, my dad is a hemophiliac, which means his blood has trouble clotting the way normal people's blood clots. It doesn't clot as fast. And so anytime my dad has to get surgery, he has to have, like what you guys were giving blood at last week, the little bags. They has to have a blood transfusion to replace everything that was lost in the surgery. And so my dad had surgery in the 1970s with all of these uh, pints of blood being infused into him to replace what was lost. And for 30 years, he got along fine. Everything changed the day my mom read an article in the paper that said hemophiliacs who were having surgeries in the 1970s are now beginning to show huge incidences of diseases that we now have names for like HIV and hepatitis C. They didn't even know about these things back in the 70s, and so they wouldn't test for them. All that blood, never screened for that stuff. And so these people were having pints and pints and pints of contaminated blood transfused into them in surgeries, And my dad, for 30 years, got along fine. And my mom said, I want you to go to the doctor, and I want you to get your blood tested. That's all I'm asking. And I think after a few times of my dad brushing her off, he eventually went just to make her happy. And the first news I learned of this situation was a few days later when uh, my parents called us down for a family meeting. And my dad told me that his doctor said, "You you have hepatitis C, and you've had it for 30 years. And it's been ravaging your liver. And if it's not dealt with right now, your only option for survival is a liver transplant. There was no cure for hepatitis C at the point. It's a blood disease that attacks the liver, basically uh, keeps your liver from being able to strain out contaminants in your bloodstream. Livers are not something there's a lot of to go around in donor lists. And so my dad was hearing this news. For 30 years, I've had hepatitis C. That article, and my mom's insistence that my dad read the article and go to the doctor, saved his life. That article saved my dad's life. So what if my dad had ignored that article, had ignored my mom's insistence, read this, and go get tested? Well, for the next 30 years, he felt fine, but eventually big symptoms would start to show up. For instance, I feel tired. Well, that would be interpreted through a normal interpretive grid, the way you feel when you feel tired. So he might say, I need to get to bed earlier. Or I'm losing weight. Okay, I need to start eating more protein. Or I keep getting sick all the time. Well, maybe it's allergy season. All of the data would have been misinterpreted. Meanwhile, he's being ravaged and destroyed from the inside out by a disease he doesn't even know he has. And that article is screaming out, there's something going on inside of you. Genesis 3 is a lot like that article. Genesis 3, in a sense, is God saying to his people, Israel, there's something horrible going on in the depths of you. 
there's a disease, you've been infected, Israel, my people. And that is your biggest problem, not Pharaoh. Your need for deliverance is more prominent with this problem than with the Pharaoh problem. This is your priority. This is your danger. This is what's going on inside of you that you need deliverance from. And so he's, he's reorienting Israel the way that article reoriented my dad and immediately shifted his priorities. No longer was he concerned with the little diddly things of life because for two years he's on a treatment like chemo. Uh, and, and, and by God's mercy, is essentially they're calling it a cure today. But, uh, but this is the same for Israel. Israel, you have to know what's going on inside. If you're going to walk through life in relationship with me, if you're going to interpret reality correctly, you have to know uh, these things. And so if you don't know what disease is in you, for Israel, for my dad, for us, if you don't know what disease is in you, if you don't know what damage it's done, and if you don't know where to get help, you have no hope. My dad could have died and never known why. So if you don't know those things, you don't have hope of cure. And so Genesis 3 is doing the same thing. That is, and what the gist of it is, is you're hell-bent on getting away from me. That's the gist of it. That's the personality, the practicality of what he's saying is, Israel, you're hell-bent on getting away from me, the God of life. And this is a theme that keeps coming up because it all, it's all over the Bible, which presumes it's rather prevalent with us. So we're going to talk about three points as we consider what I just said. Uh, the first is this, the disease of sin, the damage that sin does, and the prognosis uh, sorry, in the prognosis for sinners or, or God's response to this sin. So, we're about five weeks into the semester. We've been talking about God's story and your story. It's really important that we appreciate the past three weeks because the Bible doesn't begin in Genesis 3. The Bible began with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. The Bible began in places of goodness. The Bible began with God making a home for his people, custom calibrating everything for human flourishing. You remember last week? We're reflectors, helpers, and rulers who are supposed to cover the earth, the face of the earth, with the beautiful image of God, marking his authority there, spreading life, life cascading out. That's, what Genesis, that's where the Bible starts. And so Genesis 3 comes on like this nasty, grimy, blurry transparency that fits right on top of, what Gen, of Genesis 1 and 2. Imagine those three transparencies put on top of each other. It doesn't slide the first two out. There's remnants of that, and you and I remember it. It's called what we hope for, what we long for, what we want to be delivered unto. Those are the remnants of those first two transparencies. Genesis 3 is like a vandalistic transparency that gets put on top of that. and distorts everything. It blurs the lines. You can't tell what is what anymore. You can't tell where things belong. It's all out of order. That's what this disease is. That's what Genesis 3 is about. So the question God's trying to tell his people is, how did home get destroyed? How did all of the things that we've been spending the past couple of weeks talking about, how did it get destroyed? How did it get flipped on end so that we're no longer under God as reflectors? We're above him. We're no longer alongside others as helpers. We're tyrants above them, and we're underneath creation as servants and slaves to little things like serpents. So the first thing we can see is that the serpent's an intruder. He doesn't fit in the story. He's not mentioned in the first two chapters here, and, and God says he's shrewd, he's crafty. He's the shrewdest of all the shrewd, uh, creatures, And he's doing something really weird that should raise our red flag. Because here you have, we said the other week, human beings created above creation as a ruler. Here you have an animal talking, first red flag, to a human being. Trying to be a little counselor, an advisor, a theologian, whispering in humanity's ears saying, this is the path of life. This is the truth. 
So from the very beginning, you see that the, the, that the serpent is an intruder. And this isn't a philosophical musing about where did evil come from. That's not God's concern in this passage. His concern is the on-the-ground effect. The fact that this did intrude, and it's, it's the source of all of our sadness and pain and arrogance and pride and everything else ever since. And the devil's attack is uh, something that God wants his people to be alert to. Not so much, Israel, don't let this happen to you. It's more, Israel, this happened to you. And to us tonight, this happened to you. It happened to me. This is your story. We'll talk about that in a little bit, how the Bible makes that connection. But you're reading the first chapter of your autobiography here, too. And we'll look at a lot of these specific points, which is why I wanted you to have a, have a bulletin to follow along with me. The first thing is this. How does, how does the devil actually get a hold of Eve's attention? How does, he, how does the disease bite? How does it get in us? A few ways. The serpent exaggerates the severity of God's command. Verse 1, did God actually say you may not eat of any tree of the garden? You've got to be kidding me. You're in this beautiful garden that's supposed to fan out and spread over the whole globe, and he said you can't eat of any tree of the garden? Well, if you have a phone or a Bible, flip back one chapter, Genesis 2.16. Did God ever say you can't eat of any tree of the garden? No. He said the emphatic opposite. Adam, Eve, knock yourselves out. Eat of any tree of the garden. Live it up, but do not eat of one tree. This is not ten commandments. This is one commandment. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We talked last week about what what the purpose of that was. This was, in a sense, a place for Adam and Eve to prove to the world, to reflect to the world the superiority of God. He is precious. He is prized. He is the treasure. Not whatever alternative path involves disobeying him on that other path. So the devil exaggerates the command of God. Are you familiar with that in the language of your mind, your heart? How unreasonable. Is God serious? I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that. What a boring, dull life. This is the kind of stuff the devil was appealing to and drawing Eve's attention to. How stingy God is, and by comparison, how lavish a giver, what a faithful giver the devil is. I know your future, I will protect you. He exaggerates the severity of God's command. He insinuates also God is evil, and he assassinates God's character. God knows, Eve, God knows that if you eat of that, you will be like him. He is a hoarder. He is threatened by you. He's like, Eve, are you going to let this happen? Are you kidding me? Look at what's happening before your eyes. Stand up for yourself. This is a stingy God protecting his turf. Life for you is trespassing onto that and eating of that tree. So he insinuates that God is evil. God's the evildoer. God's the oppressive tyrant, just like Pharaoh that Israel knew all too well. He says, Eve, don't fall for this. And he downplays the danger of disobedience. You won't surely die. You won't surely die. Again, he's a prophet. He's saying, I see the future. You will be wise. You're not going to die. So that's kind of the method of the attack. That's how the disease gets inside. Again, the question is, Familiar language? Familiar thoughts? Familiar feelings with us? Genesis 3 says, of course. The Bible gets us. It's the book that gets what life is like in your skin. So it's going to be far more honest than you and I are prone to be honest. But it says, yes, of course we have these thoughts. So this is a glimpse of the disease that we talked about in point one. 
that intruded into to paradise, what damage did it cause? Well, if this was the epicenter, like the earthquake happened here, then that tsunami, those, like that powerful, massive tsunami of destructive force radiates out from there, ripples out, and everything it touches, it inundates with this kind of toxin, and it destroys it. So what does the damage begin to look like as that tsunami begins to bump up into things, oh, like human beings, or like the stuff of our life? Bob Dylan's a really insightful guy. He gets a lot of stuff. And he says this in his song, Everything's Broken. Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws, broken bodies, broken bones, broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath if you feel like you're choking. Everything is broken. Seem like every time you stop and turn around, something else just hit the ground. Broken hands on broken plows, Broken treaties, broken vows, broken pipes and broken tools, people bending broken rules. Hound dog howling, bullfrog croaking, everything is broken, broken. Do you see that too? Everything, everything is broken, broken. That's the damage that we'll look at in point two. Why are relationships hard? Dating relationships, roommate relationships, parent-child relationships, employee relationships. Why are they hard? We have a lot of quick answers. Incompatibility, so we, our country invests billions and billions of dollars in things like eHarmony. Not a bad thing. There's a little bit of truth to that. But our culture would say that's the reason relationships don't work. So if you're incompatible with a partner, and if you're divorced with them, that's inconvenient. But back out of that commitment and go look for someone who is compatible with you. That's what people would say is wrong with relationships. Or we don't share the same interests or the same hobbies or whatever. This says relationships aren't inherently, inherently hard. They're inherently easy. Genesis 1 and 2, right? But what happens when that transparency gets put on top? And it blurs all the lines, distorts it, grimes it up, turns it upside down. Then relationships become hard because of sin, because of evil. Because people, we're, not, we're no longer as heirs, helpers to each other, strong helpers, using all of our resources to push other people towards life. But we're people who will take other people's resources for us to get life, right? Roommates, parents, children, dating relationships. We're people who use other people, don't serve other people. That's why relationships are hard, is because of what's coming here. Sin is this. It's antisocial, it's antipersonal. If you, look at your, if you look at the passage, you're going to see this. You're going to see something that might not make sense, but let me clue you in here. When the Bible uses the word God in the Old Testament, it's referring kind of in a more generic sense. When the Bible uses in all caps the word Lord God, it's referring to God's his, his covenantal name, his intimate personal name that he told to Israel, Yahweh. So where do you see Lord God appearing in this passage, and where do you see God kind of a derogatory term, almost that God. The devil says, did, that, did that, that God, little g, did that God really say? The whole dialogue is impersonal. It's almost third person. And you don't see Yahweh coming back up until God reenters the picture later. So it depersonalizes everything. Adam and Eve, you see a beautiful communion of relationship where there are no problems. There's nothing they would complain about in their relationship. And all of a sudden, hiding, blame shifting, Throwing each other under the bus as fast as they can. It's anti-personal. It's narcissistic. They're after their own interests now. And other people are collateral damage. They get in the way of what you want, you run them over. 
Your wife gets in your way, you say, God, it's the woman you gave me. The serpent gets in your way, God, it's the serpent who deceived me. But it's, it's water off the duck's back. We push blame aside. It's anti-personal. It's anti-social. We're dead to one another, dead to God, dead in sin. That's the picture that Genesis 3 is creating here. So it kind of, it severs some ties between our vertical relationship, Adam and Eve and their God. And you see them doing the same thing with God that they do with each other. Hiding, blaming, skirting, running, fear, shame. And you see it in their horizontal relationships too. That's why relationships are hard. That's why a relationship with God is hard on our end. Because we do these kind of things with him as well. So it also damages our condition. So it damages our relationships. It damages our condition as well. Does, is the devil a true prophet? He makes a lot of prophecies. He says a lot of stuff's going to happen. Did it ever come true? You look back to, uh, I believe it's um, verse 4, the first of his promises. Adam, if you're, you surely won't die. Of course you won't die. Did they die? Yes. Flip over to chapter 5, you'll see their death. But in a sense, we just talked about it, a, a death to God, a death to each other, a death in sin. Absolutely. In a sense, a spiritual death. And then a physical death. First promise, devil promises life, he delivers death. And I don't think he ever cared about it. Second promise, first part of verse 5, your eyes will be open. Were their eyes opened? The text says their eyes were open, but in an ironic sense. Could they discern between good and evil after that? Could they tell the difference between death and life? Or do those two things get reversed and now good has become bad and bad has become good? What is grossly, freakishly abnormal has now become normal and desirable. And it's actually worthy of me bending my life towards this vision. That if they had the eyes they had in Genesis 1 and 2 would have would have outraged them, would have disgusted them. Now it's beautiful. Sin has become beautiful to them. Were their eyes open? No. They're blind ever since. They can't tell up from down, left from right, good from bad, life from death. And so they're like moths to a thousand different lights, having no clue where to go, but flying really fast there. The third promise, five, uh, the second part of verse 5, you will be like God, knowing the difference in good and evil. This is crazy to see. Adam and Eve were like God. They already were like God. Why is the devil telling them, if you do this, then you'll be like God? We just spent two weeks talking about how Adam and Eve reflected his image. They were created to reflect that image. They're the solar panels created to thrive underneath the light. And now the devil is saying, well, if you want to be like God, do this. Did they become like God? No. They became like animals. We'll see it. We'll look at that a little bit more closely in a more. Not so much. They don't just bear the image of God anymore. We don't just bear the image of God anymore. We bear the image of animals too. We bear the image of the serpent. And the devil starts showing up in the way we think, the way we feel, the way we desire, the lives we live. Do you see how Eve's thoughts, Eve's desires start to look like the devil's desires? The serpent's desires. He says, did God really say you can't eat of any tree? And she parrots back the correct thing. Yeah, God said we couldn't eat of any tree except the tree in the midst of the garden. Oh, and this. It is unreasonable. It is severe. Because he said, don't touch it. The serpent that used to be outside of Eve is now inside of Eve. And it gets worse from there. 
She starts thinking, God is holding me back. God is keeping me from life, not delivering life to me. That's her psychology at this point. It's her, it's her emotions. It also involves a, a confusion about who our caretaker is, who our father is. This is insidious. And you see this almost every single time the devil tempts God's people. You'll see it in how he tempts us. This is the devil's line every time. I will be your father. I will take care of you. Follow me. He even says it to Jesus Christ himself. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all of this. I will be your provider. He says it to Jesus in the wilderness. Worship me and I'll make bread for you right now. I will feed you, Jesus. Where's your father? Because you've been here 40 days, no food and water. And it looks like you're about to die. Where is he? He says the same to Adam and Eve. I will be your father, Eve. I will tell you the truth about the future. I know the future. God is twisting and manipulating you. I will tell you the truth. Trust me. Listen to me. Follow me and find life. Insidious. So you see, sin isn't just this, I choose to do this and I have a little fun. Sin is this disease coursing through us that makes us see the devil as a good father and God as an oppressive tyrant. That's how bad this is. That's how ugly and powerful this is. Which sets up uh, later, the size of our Redeemer has to match the size of the problem. But that's the thing. Here, uh, Buckle up for this. Buckle up. We are, in a way satanic theologians we have satanic thoughts about god the thought god is not here whatever place you're in in life god is not here it's a satanic thought god is everywhere we talked about psalm 131 he's he's with his people if i go to the mountaintops you're there if i descend into sheol behold you are there with your face turns towards me so when you ask is god present or not he's even with us or not which the israelites always ask in the wilderness god says you're asking that you're parroting back what the devil asks Those kind of questions. Or, God made me this way. I'm going to embrace these desires and just go fulfill them. Even though he says they're wrong, I don't want to battle against them. I felt them from my birth, so I'm going to to indulge them all and go for it. It's satanic theology. Is God good or not? He seems oppressive. Satanic theology. It's gotten in us. It's become a part of us. This is what we need deliverance to. And like Sid used to always tell you guys, sin isn't bad breath. Sin is brain cancer. Sin isn't bad breath. Sin is brain cancer. Sin is a part of us that we need deliverance. Someone who can get their hands inside of us to deal with this. Real quickly, we're also do-it-yourselfers. Is it ironic the very first thing fallen man and woman do is start fixing themselves? (laughs) Fig leaves. Pretense. Posturing. It's not as bad as I thought. Hiding shame. So these are the patterns we follow in their footsteps. So why are Adam and Eve ashamed? Because they were a king and a queen, right? We said last week they're royalty. They're royalty. They're the representatives of God. So it would be a shame. I think the shame that they felt is the shame that Queen Elizabeth would feel if she woke up in a gutter of a nasty neighborhood in London naked and all of her subjects are standing there laughing at her. This is the queen. Why is she ashamed, though? Because 
That was her identity. That was her most valuable possession, is I am the monarch. I'm the queen. And when that's stripped away, that is shameful. So Adam and Eve, what do they value the most? What's, what's the most valuable about them? That they bear God's image, and now they look at what they've done. They sound like the devil. They act like the devil. They think like the devil. They look like animals in a lot of ways. Shame enters the human race for the first time ever. And they're experiencing these emotions for the first time ever with no clue what to do because no one's written books about this stuff yet. They hide as well. Here's the, here's the thing about that. They find safety apart from God. We just see the snowball effect. They find safety far away from God, not before his face, not with him. The last thing they begin to look like animals. Here's the thing. God covers their shame. He looks at their shame. He looks at their lacking. And he mercifully covers it. But what does he cover it in? Of all the stuff he could have covered their their shame with, he could have covered it with a fig leaf. He could have covered it with anything else he created. Why does he cover it with animal skins? That's all the narrator says. He covered them with skins or garments of skins, garments of animals. Imagine the picture for a second to understand what he's doing. Here is a human being, a man and a woman, the image bearer of the Most High God. And all the angels are watching this, and all the animals are watching this, and here are these two people that look like you and me, and they're being escorted out of the garden, and what do they look like? Animals. Could it be that God's dressing them according to the image they bear now, the way they look? It's a fitting outfit. You look like the animals now, Adam. You look like the animals, Eve. You live by passion. You live by indulging whatever desire, whatever sensual urge comes up. You, you live by instinct now. Something ha- has happened with your status. He's not saying you don't bear the image of God anymore. Uh, later on in Genesis, that's the rationale that murder is prohibited, is that you do, people do still bear the image of God after the fall. But he's saying something else. You look like an animal. You act like an animal. David said, behold, I was like a brute beast before you. The Bible carries this imagery all throughout. We're like animals. Sin sin makes an animal out of us. So we have built a very tall order. If this is what the disease has done, if this is the wreckage it has wrought upon us, we have a really tall order. Where's hope? Let's do a little compare and contrast to find where the hope is. What's Adam and Eve's relationship like before and after the fall? Before the fall, harmonious, no problems, no complaints. Afterwards, ashamed. There's a huge, gargantuan rift between them. They hide, they blame, they resent. They're bitter towards each other. What about their relationship with God before the fall? Harmonious, beautiful communion. Never thinking to ask the question, where's God? Because he's there with you, walking with you in the cool of the morning. After the fall, hiding from him, terrified of him, ashamed in front of him, confused before him, guilty before him. The serpent before and after. Before he he presents himself as a loving father, I will take care of you. After the fall, where the heck is he? He's AWOL. Until God calls him on the mat and curses him. Where is he after the fall? He disappears. What about their vocations and the jobs? Beforehand, a delight, an adventure. Afterwards, toilsome, cursed, difficult. 
their image beforehand, beautifully reflecting the image of God, soaking up the rays of that and thriving afterwards, looking like animals. Here's the hope. Who didn't change? Who didn't fall? Who didn't become a traitor? Who's the one person who is the exact same before and after this event? Because that is where our hope is. There's one person left with the resources to do anything about what happened. Before the fall, gracious, loving, lavish, life-giving God. Afterwards, gracious, loving, life-giving God. There is our hope. And this is a God who doesn't leave. He doesn't abandon his people. He moves towards them. He sees the wreckage and he moves towards it. And this is perhaps the biggest question you will have to face in your life. More than all those questions people say we sit out on the front porch talking about all the time until 3 in the morning. This is the question you have to deal with. What does God do when he sees the world or your life go to hell in a handbasket? What does he do? Where is he and what is he like? When your world crumbles, when you crumble, either at the, at the hands of other people or, or at your own self-inflicted wounds, what does he do? Does he stand off cynically with his arms crossed and said, you idiot, you made your bed sleep in it? Or does he begin to move towards the wreck and find himself neck deep in it with you? Genesis chapter 3 Where is God immediately after? Walking in the garden in the cool of the morning. Engaging his people, pursuing, chasing hiders and wanderers. Saying, where are you? Not because God didn't know. Adam and Eve didn't know where they were. It's the first time they've ever been in this kind of a place. Where are you? And he begins to promise things. Patrick is going to preach a lot more on this next week. And so I'm just going to... I'm going to mention it and push on, but he promises a tall redeemer for a tall order. And he says, I'm going to put enmity between the offspring of the devil and the offspring of the woman. And the hero is the offspring of the woman, and he is the man for the match. So he promises that hope, and Adam gets it because he names his wife Eve, the, the mother of the living. So hope returns into this picture. I want to end with this. If this diagnosis is true, if this diagnosis is true of us, if this is the disease coursing through us, the question is, number one, do you agree with it? Or do you find in your heart and in your mind these these pushbacks? No, 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 that's not true. That's overkill. That's over the top. That's oppressive. That's that's life-draining, not life-giving. I'm not going to go there. My question to you is, whose thoughts, whose desires, whose feelings are you parroting back? Do you need deliverance from that? Other ways, uh, do you see the God of this, uh, this passage moving towards you in the midst of the wreck? In the midst of the disease, do you see him moving towards you with a cure? Or do you see him cynically holding back? Do we self-medicate like my dad would have been doing for 30 years? Take a little Advil here, get a little more rest here. Find ways to undo the damage of the fall. Jesus gets us in the midst of this process of trying to put ourselves back together and all these little fig leaves we put on. I want to finish by reading from C.S. Lewis, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He gives us a beautiful picture of what Jesus is up to for people like us with a disease like this 
who are being put back together. Even as we try all of our little self-medication strategies to say, this diagnosis isn't true, I'm not really this sick, I can fix myself. This is what Jesus does in the midst of that. There's a little boy named Eustace. And Lewis writes, uh, Eustace gets himself in a world of trouble because he's sleeping on top of this dragon's board. And he says, greedy Eustace, dragonish thoughts in his heart. He had become a dragon himself. So this little boy has now become like the dragon. He looks like the dragon. He's become the dragon. And, uh, and Lewis writes on saying this, uh, as, as Eustace is talking now that he's a dragon. The water was as clear as anything I thought. If I, could get in, if I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my dragony legs. But the lion, Aslan, told me I must first undress. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins off. They shed their skin. Of course I thought. That's what the lion means, so I'll start to shed my skin. I'll scratch myself and the scales of the dragon will begin to come off all over the place. So then I scratched a little deeper. And instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started to peel off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana and you were taking the skin off. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of the old skin. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling to be free of it. So I started to go down for my bathe in the healing waters. But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and I saw that there were all the hard, rough, wrinkled, scaly scales on me just as there had been before. Oh, that's all right, I said I. It only means that I had another smaller suit on of underneath the first one, and I'll get these scales off too. So I started scratching, and I tore, and I scratched, and I tore. And this coat of scales came off just like the others, and I started back towards the pool. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got a third skin off just like the two others, and I stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked down, it was back. Then Aslan said, You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you that. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like a billy-o, but it's such fun to see it coming away. A little English there for you. Well, he peered the beastly stuff right off, and just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, my old scales lying on the grass, only so much thicker and darker and more knobby-looking than the others had been. And there I was, smooth, soft, smaller than I had been. And then the lion got hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, and now that I had no skin, and Aslan threw me in the water. It hurt like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone away from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. Why does a doctor show you an x-ray when you go to the ER? 
Does he do it to rub your face in your injury and mock you and say, you idiot, you broke your arm? Or does a doctor put the x-ray up on the wall because he intends to repair it, because he knows what normal looks like and he alone can put it back to where it needs to be? God gives you Genesis 3. Is he doing it to rub your face in the misery of mankind? Or is he doing it because he intends to put everything back together again through Jesus? That's what Courtney read earlier. We are Christ's workmanship. He is putting us back together. He is taking off the scales that you and I try to take off but can't. We need a redeemer, not fig leaves. We need a person to rescue us, not strategies to make the pain go away. And God gives us just that. Patrick next week will show us who that is in more detail. Let's pray that we would be people who would let Aslan, as it were, peel the scales off, that we might become human again, good again, clean again. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are so committed to us. When you saw the beauty of all that you had done and created fall apart to pieces at our doing, when you saw blood on our hands, when you see that, you do not stand cynically far off, but you move in close. We know sometimes how bad we are, but we struggle to believe that you are as good as you say you are. So, Father, tonight, Jesus tonight, Holy Spirit tonight, would you persuade our hearts? Would you push out and expel and kill these devilish thoughts we have of you, that we might see that you are the God in our deepest desires we hope you to be. We ask this in your name. Amen.